John's Gospel, if you'd like to turn to John chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the word water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Well, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up and pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Um, all right, let's pray. Uh, uh, gracious God, thank you so much that um, uh, we have the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and it's Jesus who uh, uh, gives us uh, meaning and purpose. And uh, Father, we uh, thank you for your word that it, uh, we're not in dark, but uh, we are in light because you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. Um, we uh, thank you for our uh, kids' church and we um, pray for them as they learn from your word uh, today. 
we pray for ourselves as well, that um, we would be soft in heart and uh, eager to uh, hear and respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 2005, I was, I was a bit run down. Um, I was uh, been under prolonged stress in ministry and uh, it was time to um, take some long service leave uh, just to uh, get away from it all, um, not be thinking about ministry, um, fill my brain with some other things and uh, to recharge. Uh, it was great. Our family, uh, kids took some time out of school. We travelled around Asia for two months um, because it's a really interesting part of the world and because it's affordable. It's cheap. Um, and that included some time in China. So, as I said, we didn't go there for ministry. We, I really needed a break. However, the very first person we met when we... <clears throat> you know, got off the train from Hong Kong into China and was sitting in the cafe in the train station. There was a young lady sitting next to us who was studying the King James Version of the Bible as part of her English literature course at university in a country run by the Communist Party. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, she was eager to talk to us about the Bible. So that was great. Unfortunately, her English was King James English, so uh, no, <laughs> uh, it wasn't quite like that. And then a few nights later, um, in our hotel, um, just sitting around the pool, uh, we met this young guy, he was also a non-Christian Chinese guy, and within minutes, the topic of conversation was God and Jesus and man and uh, what Christ done on the cross, and the conversation kind of quickly sort of merged from English into Cantonese, which is not Cassie's home dialect, but it was, she can get by in it, and, but it was his heart language, and uh, so she talked to him about the gospel, and the conversation went on for quite a while, and by the end of that, we um, were able to say to him, we knew of uh, some Christians who we could connect with, and um, uh, helped him to be able to do that. You know, uh, that was wonderful. And the next morning, I was having my prayer time and I just dropped all thoughts that I was not there to do any ministry. <laughs> and uh, I, I prayed to God and I said, Lord, um, just, just give me another opportunity like that, please. That would be great, which he did that very night. Uh, we'd met um, some people uh, in that city uh, who'd been kind to us. And so we booked a... Um, a private um, room in a restaurant and we invited them all around for dinner. Uh, one of the guests, um, pretty much as soon as he met, met me, he was, a, he was a father of a girl that had been doing some translation work for us and uh, she introduced me to her dad and uh, she said, uh, and through the translation through her, uh, the dad said to me, look, um, uh, a couple of years ago I met some people who were really, really kind to me um, they were Christians. Can you please explain to me what Christians are and what you believe? So I come to the right place. Um, and uh, so uh, I started sharing the gospel with him. Um, I used uh, napkins to draw diagrams. Uh, and uh, before I knew it, um, every person in the room was crowded around this table uh, listening to the gospel and um, asking questions 
about the gospel. Good questions as well. It was fantastic. What stopped the conversation was this kind of bank up of um, waiters and waitresses who were trying to bring on this banquet for us. And uh, it was a really interesting time. Back home in Port Macquarie, a couple of weeks later, I started to realise just how hard ministry in Australia is. You know, there are so many opportunities for people here to, um, to hear about the Lord and to, you know, to listen to the gospel. And yet, it's just so often met with apathy. Like it's, you know, people aren't always all that interested in talking about God and Jesus and so on. And, and then, you know, there's this growing intolerance in our society to Christianity and to Christians and our message and so on. Uh, although, um, not to be too pessimistic, God is at work and there are people who are listening to the gospel and becoming Christians um, like us. Um, God is at work. But it's not often, it does happen, but it's not often we, that we find the non-Christian who we meet for the first time is actually drawing us into a conversation with them um, to tell them about God and Jesus. This ground seems so hard, doesn't it? Seems so hard compared to other places. We, we need to pray for Australia. We need to pray that like this rain that's you know, falling around us, that God by his spirit would be pouring out his spirit. Um, like this rain is softening the ground, that God's spirit would be softening people's hearts, um, that they would be eager to find out about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this um, comparison between different places and different peoples um, was also a bit of an issue for Jesus. You know, uh, last week, if you were with us in John chapter 4, <clears throat> we saw that some of the most responsive people uh, that um, Jesus ever encountered in his ministry were not Jews. They, they were Samaritans. And the despised, the half-caste um, uh, race of people with a faulty religion, it was them that there was, you know, as Jesus stopped uh, on route, you know, remember he was going from, he was in Judea and because he didn't want to bring on the confrontation with the Pharisees too quickly, he sort of headed north because he wanted to get to Galilee, his own home territory. He had to cut through Samaria and it was in Samaria that he uh, found that the Samaritans were, were eager to listen, that their, that their hearts were soft, um, that there was zero opposition. <laughs> there was zero opposition and many of them trusted in him as saviour, as saviour of the world. They, they invited him to stick around, stay around with us for longer, you know, a couple more days. Can we have a bit more of you, please? And then in today's passage from John 4, verse 43, uh, Jesus continued uh, his journey uh, further north into Galilee, which I mentioned is his home territory. He's Jesus of Nazareth, which is in Galilee. But there's something, you know, a little bit strange in what John tells us in verses 43 to 45. Let me read it for you. It says, After the two days he left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet is without honour in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee... 
the Galileans welcomed him. And do you see the contradiction there? I mean, sometimes when a person is a local and, you know, they make good, uh, it's kind of easy for the other locals to be a bit dismissive of them because you know them so well, whereas other people who are not locals might actually be very impressed with, with such people. And, and this is something which Jesus experienced, you know, people in his own home territory, they'd say, well, isn't, isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, isn't his mum's name Mary? Don't his brothers live with us? Uh, what are they saying? They're saying, well, who does he think he is? <laughs> who does he think he is? And that's what uh, it means by without honour. Without honour in his own country, says John, and yet he goes on to say, and they welcomed him. Now I'd want to be asking, well, what kind of welcome is this in that case? Uh, the Samaritans welcomed him first as a prophet and then as Messiah, the saviour of the world. Um, but the Jews welcome him not as Messiah, but as a miracle worker. There's a bit of a difference here. Uh, for in verse 45, we're told that these um, people, these um, Jews living in Galilee, that they had earlier seen Jesus in Jerusalem and the works that he did in Jerusalem. Uh, and that's what uh, John described back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 23 to 24, that they had seen um, Jesus perform miracles and they believed in him, but Jesus didn't trust them because Jesus knew what that kind, he knew the hearts of men. He knew what that kind of belief um, is, how superficial, how fickle uh, it can be when they're believing in him on the basis that they've seen him perform some miracles. That's in John chapter 2. And it explains Jesus' reaction to what happens next. Now, in verse 46, Jesus was in the, the town of Cana. What, what else is Cana famous for, friends? From water into wine. Um, the first miracle that Jesus did in, um, in, uh, in Galilee. He's in Cana of Galilee, so he's back there again, uh, when a royal official comes to him because he, he, he's come from Capernaum, it's also in that area, and it's back in Capernaum, in his home in Capernaum, where his son was sick. In fact, this um, royal official's son was sick to the point of being close to death. Now, this sounds a little bit sim similar to another incident, which is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 8, where a Roman centurion... Um, came to Jesus uh, about his servant who was paralysed. But the centurion um, did not ask Jesus to come back with him to his home uh, because he, he knew, he trusted that Jesus could heal just by his word. You know, he said to him, just speak a word and my servant will be healed. I know how it works. Right? This man, though, was different. Um, he's most likely a Jew. I think if he wasn't a Jew, then John would have said something about that. And he's in Galilee, it's Jewish territory, and he is a royal official, which means that he served Herod Antipas, um, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. It's 
not technically a king, but um, people treated him as being a king. And so this man uh, is important and he's desperate, which is understandable. His son is dying. Now, if, I was in his, if my son was dying, I would do anything. Um, I would do anything. We all would. So how would Jesus react? Would Jesus just drop everything, you know, immediately rush to Capernaum to um, be with this man's son? Well, have a look in verse 48. Jesus responds to the man by saying this. He says, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. That's not what we expect, is it? It sounds more like he's rebuking this man. However, think about it. When the Roman centurion came to Jesus for similar reasons, he did not need the reassurance of Jesus coming back home with him to his servant. Um, in fact, he didn't even consider himself to be worthy enough that Jesus should come under his roof. Uh, just speak the word, he says to Jesus. I, I know who you are. I trust that it'll be done. Whereas this royal official comes to Jesus also desperate, but not really grappling um, so much with who Jesus is. Um, he's heard that Jesus can perform miracles. He wants Jesus to come. And when Jesus says, no, uh, I'm not coming, you, you just go. Your son will live. Uh, we're told that he, he takes Jesus at his word, which is great. Um, however, it's only after the miracle, when he's heading back and then some of his servants meet him halfway and they say, it's great news, your son is, is alive. And he says, well, when did that happen? And they said, tell him what hour? And he realised that was when Jesus had spoken to him. And it's that point when it's confirmed by the miracle that we're told that he, he believed. He truly believed in Jesus, as did his whole household. So the story ends well. But it, it represents the kind of um, uh, less than certain reaction that Jesus gets amongst his own people. Um, whereas the Samaritans, the Samaritans had believed on the basis of what he taught them, what he taught them from God's word. And they only had the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, but these Jews, these Galileans, they, they welcome the miracle worker, but it's still that a prophet is without honour in his own home, in his own country. And it's not much different amongst the Jews further south in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is placed. Um, where in chapter 5, John tells us something that happened a bit after that time about a paralysed man. Let me read this part of this story for you again, just to recap uh, or refresh your memories. Verse, five, verse 1 of chapter 5, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Uh, you always go up to Jerusalem, by the way, even if you're heading south to get there because it's on a hill. Uh, now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. 
Uh, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. Um, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Um, when Jesus saw him lying there and learnt that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I've, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. It's interesting that John says that um, people used to lie there. So he's talking when he's writing this. Um, apparently this is not something that was still happening um, at that time. But again, this is another good news story. <clears throat> there is, by the way, an excavation site in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem, apparently in the northeast quadrant, if you've ever been to Jerusalem. I, I haven't. Uh, there's an excavation site which matches this very description. Uh, it's, and it's near um, uh, a place which is called Nehemiah's Sheep Gate. How about that? Um, the pools, uh, it seems, were fed water from some large uh, reservoirs and uh, possibly there were some uh, water springs which flowed intermittently and that might explain why the water would sometimes get churned up, um, disturbed or stirred, as some translations put it. Um, some ancient sources describe the, the redness of the water, uh, which um, I understand can come from iron minerals um, in the water, which um, people thought to be medicinal. Now, John doesn't tell us which... A particular feast had brought Jesus um, back to Jerusalem. Um, people speculate as to which one it was, but John doesn't tell us, so we don't really need to know, do we? That's not important for the story. The important thing is that Jesus met this crippled man. 38 years, folks. 38 years. This is no temporary injury, the healing of which could be fudged. Um, this is serious stuff. And his only hope was the supposed therapeutic powers of the waters <clears throat> when they was churned up, presumably when the springs were flowing uh, into it. And when that happens, um, he tries to get down into the water, um, but others push him ahead of him. And there's some view that they might have had a superstition that the first person to get into the water would be healed, or it might just be that the pool's got a bit crowded. Um, we don't know. But the point is that he, this guy is lonely and he has no one who can even lift him up to put him into the water. It's a hopeless situation. And it's easy to think of him as being just this poor, um, sad, humble man who you know, would clearly respond in faith um, and in thankfulness towards Jesus, uh, a bit like the Samaritans. But the evidence in the passage isn't there for that. Um, in verses 8 and 9, the man is healed. Now, can you imagine that? 38 years, a, a helpless cripple? You'd be rejoicing, wouldn't you? And not only that, imagine if you were one of the... Um, 
religious leaders and, and, you, and you, you saw this happen, how would you respond to that? I mean, you have to be overflowing with, with joy and with happiness. I reckon I'd be in tears, don't, wouldn't you? You see that happening and you'd be, you'd be just wanting to thank and praise and honour God for the great thing. But instead, the focal issue is that Jesus told this guy to pick up his mat and be on his way. That becomes the focal issue. The problem was that it was the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders, they see what's going on. This guy's carrying his mat and they step in and they're saying, hey, you know, don't you know that it's the Sabbath and that the Lord and that the law prohibits you from carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Really? Does it? No, the law doesn't. The law doesn't prohibit this guy from carrying his mat on the Sabbath. I mean, you know, if, if, um, if that was how he made his living, you know, if people paid him to carry mats for them, but they don't. This man's job is not carrier of mats. Uh, this was just one of their legalistic traditions that uh, placed a burden on others and really um, clouded the, the mercy and the kindness of God. But notice his response. You'd have to say it's, <clears throat> it's not profound because um, <clears throat> he, he sort of shifts the blame to Jesus a little bit or responsibility to Jesus. You know, they say, well, you know, what are you doing? You're carrying the mat on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. And he says, well, that man who healed me, he told me to do it. And he, and he didn't really go out looking for Jesus to thank him either. Um, Jesus slipped away into the crowd. And in verse 14, it's actually Jesus who found the man. Have a look at that, verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning. Or well, something else, something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who'd made him well. Stop sinning. What, what do you think Jesus had to tell the guy to stop sinning? There's a couple of different views on this. Um, you know, <clears throat> one thought is that perhaps that there was a particular explicit sin that this guy had was, you know, it was a chronic sin in his life that had actually caused him to be in that situation in the first place, and he wasn't repented of that. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. We can't make that judgment. Um, we should never make that judgment. You know, um, unless we've got some reason for doing so some clear evidence um, perhaps Jesus is just pointing to something which is true for all of us and that is that <clears throat> our greatest problem in life is not our personal circumstances our greatest problem in life um, may not be that chronic illness that we have or that um, uh, or that disability um, that um, we're afflicted with, uh, or whatever problems and difficulties. No, our greatest problem in life is sin, is that we're all sinful. We, none of us love and trust and obey God as we should, such that after death, something worse 
happens to us. It's called judgment and punishment, hell. That's what we, what we need to turn back to God, isn't it? And this is the, the, re, the reason that Jesus needed to warn this man. He had to warn this man that it's not just about being able to walk around carrying a mat that counts. It's about repenting of your sin. That's the important thing. You see, the royal official in Galilee, <clears throat> he only believed after he got word that the son had been healed. But at least he believed. And yet this man, 38 years a cripple, now walking straight, carrying a mat, um, instead of believing in Jesus and rejoicing, he goes out of his way to go and report Jesus to the, to the, to the authorities. It was Jesus who told me to, to carry my mat. And the next thing we hear is the persecution by those authorities against Jesus. In verse 16, <clears throat> So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father <clears throat> is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, <laughs> because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, you'd have to say that to heal a crippled person on the Sabbath, <clears throat> well, frankly, I couldn't think of a better day to heal a person than on the Sabbath. Because what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a symbol it symbolises a number of things. It symbolises that we can trust in God. We don't have to work seven days a week. We can trust him to provide for us. But it's a, this wonderful symbol. Sabbath means rest. And it's this symbol that points to, um, is, a, is, is a shadow of a reality. And the reality is God's ultimate rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, says Jesus, and I will give you rest for your souls. The rest for our souls that Jesus gives us is God's heavenly rest. We're at the resurrection, after the general resurrection, when we are resurrected, uh, then we will be given new bodies, perfect bodies, bodies like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever. We won't need wheelchairs in heaven. I won't even need these spectacles in heaven. <laughs> We'll be perfect in that respect. And so the, <clears throat> the concept of Jesus healing a person on a Sabbath that a person is actually made well again in the Sabbath is a good symbol of what the Sabbath is actually all about. Now, Jesus could have pointed this out to, the, to these religious leaders. But instead, <clears throat> he, he takes a different tact. And he refers them to the fact that God, his Father, works on the Sabbath. <laughs> You ever thought about that? That God works on the Sabbath. You know, the Jews actually debated this issue. They debated this issue. And that is that given that the universe does not stop functioning on the Sabbath day, is God a Sabbath breaker? They seriously debated that issue. If he, and if he does rest on the Sabbath... 
<clears throat> then who keeps the universe ticking over? Um, <clears throat> they, no one seriously actually thought that, G, that God was a Sabbath breaker. <laughs> Imagine that. But, so they, they had to work out ways of resolving this, this issue. Um, for example, later on in the first century, the latter part of the first century, um, on this issue of carrying things on the Sabbath... Um, some of the rabbis concluded that um, for God, the whole universe is his domain, the whole universe is his household, and what, they, what their laws prohibited was carrying stuff outside of your household on the Sabbath day, and because the whole universe is God's household, then therefore he's off the hook. Um, <clears throat> um, he's allowed to carry things because he's carrying things within his household. They also come up with this view that um, because God doesn't lift anything above his body height because he fills the universe, then also um, he's exempt from the Sabbath regulations in terms of lifting things above your body height. <sighs> Legalism, friends, the, the knots that it gets you into theologically. Now that aside, <clears throat> Jesus says that just as my father works on the Sabbath, so too am I working. What's he saying? Two things. Number one, the same factors that apply to God, the father, apply to Jesus. That's big. Number two. Because God, you see the Jews when they refer to God, they sometimes talk to him about as our father. But Jesus doesn't do that here. He refers to him as my father. And uh, <clears throat> they kind of get it, that he's equating himself with God um, on both counts. And for them, that's blasphemy. And it just gives them another good reason to want to kill him even more. So, how do people respond to Jesus? <clears throat> In John 4 and 5, there are, there are different responses. The religious leaders, they hate him because he challenges their traditions and their authority. The uh, crippled man was, well, he was happy just to accept the healing of Jesus, but it didn't really lead to him, as far as we know, in the, in the passage, accepting the lordship of Jesus. And then like the official, the government official, there are those who will believe in Jesus and they're kind of also looking out for a sign, you know, to verify that and to prove it. A prophet is without honour in his own country. Um, that was the experience of Jesus. And it's that experience of lack of honour in his own country which would lead him ultimately to his death and his resurrection to pay for our sins. And that, friends, that is the miracle that we all need. Uh, the miracle that we need, it's not, it's not just life, as in the royal official's son being healed, what we need is eternal life. And it's not just uh, healing, like the cripple at the pool, but it's actually perfect healing. It's resting, it's Sabbathing in Jesus forever. That's what we need. And... Sometimes the people who respond in faith are the ones who we would least expect. So picture this. <clears throat> Let's take those types of people in the passage and <clears throat> think about if, we, if, 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 
if we were to think about which ones were most likely to respond to Jesus, how would we rank them? You guys would probably get it right because you're well tuned into these things. But some people might think, well, the religious leaders, yeah, sure, they'd be the people, they'd be the ones expecting Jesus. They'd be the first ones to respond to him. And then a poor guy that's been disabled for 38 years being healed, yeah, you'd expect him to um, put his faith in Jesus. And uh, at the bottom of the list, with the, the government official, yeah, maybe he might put his... And, no, actually, rock bottom would be the Samaritans, those half-caste, um, mixed-religion uh, people that we despise. That's how we'd rank them, humanly speaking. But what does God do? God inverts that. He flips that upside down, doesn't it? And it's the Samaritans. It's the Samaritans who take Jesus at his word um, and believe in him as the Messiah, the saviour of the world. So sometimes it's the people who we least expect to respond in faith that do so. Like the Samaritans. Or in my case, like some new friends that I made in a restaurant uh, one day. Do you know, um, in 2005, I, very, I had very little enthusiasm at that point um, to talk to people about Jesus. I just wanted to, you know, have a holiday. But God changed all of that. God changed all of that. And a few years later, one of the ladies who was in that um, room at that restaurant, as I got to share the gospel, we actually met her again. Uh, she had some family members who lived in Sydney and uh, she came to Sydney on a holiday and um, we got some friends who lived just around the corner from where she was staying. So we popped into, and she was a different lady. She was full of joy and she talked about you know we talked about jesus and the gospel at that restaurant and there was a chain of events and you know how this story ends don't you folks she was just so full of joy that she had put her trust in the lord jesus christ she was a different woman she was involved in a church and it was fabulous friends let's take some risks um, just chuck out the seed and see what God does with it. Let's keep telling people about Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus that he didn't uh, shy away from those difficult circumstances, that he was um, prepared to, uh, uh, to minister to a variety of different people, that he was prepared to go into Samaria and to talk with Samaritans, uh, that he was prepared to uh, um, uh, push back with the uh, religious leaders and in declaring your truth about himself to them. Um, Father, we pray for ourselves. We pray for Australia. We pray, Lord God, that as this uh, rain falls, softening our ground, that you, by your spirit, would be softening the hearts of people and make us people who are bold and um, give us opportunities, Lord, um, and help us to take those opportunities uh, that others might experience that ultimate healing that we all have, uh, that we found in the Lord Jesus. Amen.